turn to the book of James, James chapter 5. Okay, James chapter 5. Now, I don't want you to uh, get the idea that I'm kind of following suit with the malls and Walmart and Home Depot, but I'd like you to think for a minute about Charles Dickens' story, The, the Christmas Carol, A Christmas Carol. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And uh, maybe to help you out, we could crank down the AC and get a little snow going here. All right, just you're very familiar with this story. It's all about this this man by the name of Ebenezer Scrooge, and you know what happens. Uh, the story kind of begins, and it's it's seven years since his Ebenezer Scrooge's partner Jacob Marley has passed away. It's Christmas Eve, and you see Ebenezer Scrooge at the beginning of the book, and he is just a crotchety mean-spirited old man. There doesn't seem to be a kind bone in his body. He, he has nothing to do with compassion or charity. He is a businessman, and his life is miserable, and it just seems like he just has this aura of just badness about him. He's just he's unpleasant to be around. He doesn't like himself. He doesn't like anybody else. And then what happens is, is he kind of makes his way home on Christmas Eve at his home. Then he's He's visited by this ghost of his former business partner, Jacob Marley, who gives him this great warning. Man, you are in trouble and you're going in the wrong direction and you absolutely don't want to go where I'm going, where I'm at. And then there's a series of three different ghosts that come. There's the ghost of, of Christmas past, present, and then the one yet to come. And so the first ghost, ghost of Christmas past, kind of brings him back to when he was actually a younger boy. And he sees some scenes, and lo and behold, we find out that Ebenezer Scrooge actually was a pretty nice boy. He had some difficulties and stuff, and uh, he one of the things that he never wanted to be was poor. And that's actually very important in the story, because it's his fear of poverty that drives him to want to be rich. And you see that even as this kind of scene starts developing here, that he actually is engaged to a wonderful gal by the name of Belle, but... It comes to find out that, and she knows this, he now loves money more than he loves her. And so she wants to break the engagement. He doesn't necessarily argue it, and uh, they break it off because his heart's devotion has now been captured by money. And then the next ghost comes, ghost of Christmas present comes, and then you kind of see the scenes of people getting ready for their big Christmas Eve dinner. He actually goes to the home of his one of his workers, Bob Cratchit, and they see this humble little family. You got six kids and that littlest one, Tiny Tim. He's all frail and he's about to die. His health is terrible. And he kind of gets an inside look and even asks, hey, is this, hey, that, that little boy, is, is he going to die? And he's like, yeah, he will unless something changes. And in fact, that was uh, written so that this would instill in this man a sense of responsibility to his fellow man. A huge problem in England at the time in which uh, Charles Dickens wrote The Christmas Carol. And then the final scene, this ghost of Christmas yet to come, shows up and, and he takes him to this grave. And lo and behold, whose grave is it? This unattended, dark, gloomy, no one visits, no one cares grave. Why, it's, it's his own. And all of this was meant to warn him and to instill a change that you're in grave danger. Now, you see, for, uh, for our friend Ebenezer Scrooge, the seeds of greed actually got planted very young. He, you know, he obviously, he's like, well, I don't want to be poor, but they quickly became, I want to be rich. And he watered them. And in fact, he, he actually tended them. He sacrificed them. He actually sacrificed the woman that he loved for money and wealth. And he gave his time to it. He gave all of his time to it. 
and in the end, it destroyed him. So the reason I'm telling you this story of a Christmas carol is because it pales in comparison to the warning that is given in Scripture about making wealth your God. You see, the deadliest traps call for the most dramatic warnings. And that is what you're going to find in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. These verses, you probably will never hear them ever preached on again. They're actually rarely talked about. They're just generally skipped. They are a severe and drastic warning And we need it. You see, James is a pastor that cares for people, not only the people in the churches that are spread throughout the Roman Empire. He is concerned about lost souls. And so he exercises a dramatic passage. uh, The Holy Spirit leads him to write this to give great warning to people who have made money their God. And so what he's doing, remember, as we've been kind of following through the book of James, beginning in chapter two. He's giving obstacles to a maturing faith in Jesus Christ. And this final one is found in verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5. And that is making money your God. Now, what's going to take place here is he's going to actually outline what happens when you've made your God wealth. Now, make no mistake about it. God does not say that to have money is wrong. What he is going to drive home is the fact that throughout Scripture, there's just something about the love of money that brings out the very worst in someone. Like, let me just give you some example. Remember a guy by the name of Achan? Okay? He sees things that he wants, like silver and this gold bar, and so he is willing to actually go against the word of the Lord to try to acquire it, and it caused great devastation to him and his family. Remember there was a prophet by the name of Balaam? And there was this king called Balak who was able to pay this guy off to curse Israel and all their armies. Delilah betrays Samson for what? Because the Lord of the Philistines, the Lord of these Philistines, all of them said, listen, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver if you'll do this. Let me give you another one. Solomon. It's because his just desire for wealth, he actually abandons what God had to say about multiplying horses and wives and money. Or if you need some examples from the New Testament, remember like Ananias and Sapphira in the early church? And what did they do? Well, they, wanted to, they made it look like they were giving it all to God, like some of these others like Barnabas and people in the church. But in reality, they were hiding, holding it back and yet posing as they were like, I've given everything to God. And God said, no, that will not work. And he took their lives that very day. And probably the ultimate example of just what money can do to an individual is the materialist Judas who said, hey, to the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, what will you give me if I betray the Son of Man, Jesus the Messiah? And they said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And he said, done, I'll do it. See, money brings out the worst in us. And the love of money is deceitful, it is dangerous, And if it goes unconquered by Christ, it will lead to your devastation. Now, what is taking place here? It's like a literature of device called an apostrophe. James has been addressing the believers in the churches throughout the Roman Empire. But now he like he steps aside to address a group that he previously hadn't been addressing. And that are that are the non-believers who have made God money. their God now. This is an indictment on wealth, per se, 
Okay? If you have money, and frankly, almost everyone here in this room today, we're in the wealthy category. Okay? We've got cars. We've got apartments. We've got clothes, more clothes than we know what to do with. We're well fed. But it's not wrong to have money. There's no data in the Bible to say that it is wrong to even be wealthy. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 10, verse 22, it says this, it is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. And just to drive home the point, throughout the Bible, there are lots of very wealthy people. Let me just give you some. Abraham, there's Job, David, Josiah, there's Nicodemus, Mary, Martha, there's Joseph of Arimathea, there's Lazarus, Barnabas, Philemon. These folks were all very wealthy. God doesn't disapprove of you and having wealth. In fact, he's the one who has given you the resources. This is the issue. If you make your wealth and your money your trust, when your God, which you find your sense of security and well-being, is your resources, your financial resources and things that you think you control, that's when you're in trouble. And the warning is written to anyone who has made money your God. Remember uh, Jesus? When he was on the earth, he spoke a lot about money. And he said these unforgettable words. He said, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. If you are wealthy, it'll be extremely difficult for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, he's using obviously hyperbole. I mean, how's a camel going to go through the eye of a needle? It's impossible for a man, but it is possible for God. But he he said these words to accentuate that money is so pervasive in its power to draw you to itself that it makes it literally impossible, apart from a supreme act of God's mercy and grace, to allow you to come into the kingdom of heaven. So, with that in mind, James is going to address the wealthy. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, and weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. You're not feeling it now, but you soon will. He says, you who are rich, and he's speaking to these unbelievers who have great wealth, and we're going to find out, got some of it through rather corrupt means. He says, weep and howl for your miseries which are soon to come upon you. For your riches, verse 2, have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. He's saying, the riches that you have, now, riches were oftentimes your crops, land, uh, money, whether it be gold or silver. Um, You could actually have wealth and jewelry and clothing. He says, they're like, they're rotting. They're they're becoming of no use. They have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. And here he's, he's actually talking and calling out these people that would wear rather elaborate garments. He says, you know those garments that you wear? Well, your closet is so packed full of them that those little larvae of moths, they just kind of get in there and they actually are just eating away your garments. You know, at the time that James is writing, most of the people are what we would consider poor. They have basically one change of clothes. They have the garments that they're wearing. But the rich, these apparently, their closets are packed out and they're always buying more and they don't even have time to wear the things that they're, they've purchased. And what's happening is that the moths are just eating these all up. He says, verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments, they've become moth-eaten. And verse 3, your gold and your silver have rusted. 
and their rust will be a witness against you. And they're going to will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. He says, not only your garments are moth-eaten, but the gold and silver, it's rusted. And what he's doing is kind of using figurative language to say that it's kind of collected. And like metal would rust, so this is, is just an indictment upon you to show that indeed you're, you are not heavenly minded. You have no kingdom purposes You've made God your wealth and you are storing it and it's just kind of corroding. And at, at some point, this is going to be a witness against you. Jesus says, hey, do not store up your treasure where? On the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Because, you know, wherever your treasure is, that where that's where your heart will be also. And these folks, their treasures and the things that they had. And he says, these things are of no value. In fact... They are going to be a witness against you. Do you see that? What he said there in verse, in verse 3 there? It says, they are going to be a witness that will consume your flesh. One day, all of which you've collected is actually going to be a testimony that the God of the universe was really not your God. It was, in our case in America, the almighty dollar. But in their case, it was their wealth. You see, they were hoarding that which they had. They found their security and their identity, and, they, and it gave them a sense of superiority. And God says, it's going to be a witness against you. And in the last days, it's going to be this treasure that you stored up. It will be actually used to destroy you. These, the last days, when he talks about in that verse three, the last days is from the first time that Christ has come until his return. We are living in what the Bible calls the last days. Jesus says, you do not know the time nor the hour in which I'm going to return, but I promise you, I will return. And think of the promises that are given in Scripture. Do you know that God is batting a thousand? Every single thing that he has promised, it has come to fruition exactly as he said. And Jesus said, I will return and I want you to be ready. And he has promised to come back. And we are living in what is called the last days. We know not when he's going to return. We do know this. He will return. And he says in these last days, you're storing up for yourself this treasure. And it's going to be a witness against you. And then he says in verse 4, one of the things that you're doing is completely wicked. And God is going to bring judgment upon you. Verse 4, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. So what he's saying here is, one of the reasons you're rich is because you're morally and ethically corrupt. He's withhold, what, you, what he's doing, he's, he's citing a practice of what they would do. These guys were landowners, and what you did is you paid these really poor people, you paid them on a per diem basis, day by day, you paid them to work in your fields, whether that be to sowing seed, pulling weeds, picking out rocks, or harvesting. You paid them, and they were so poor, they lived on the daily sustenance that you'd give them. So you would pay them that day their wages. That money would be used to, for, to buy them either food for that day or for the next day. Well, apparently some of these landowners had this practice. They'd go out, get all these people to work for them, and they said, well... I'm going to, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you at the end of the week. Or I'll pay you at harvest when it's over. 
And so they were like, what do I do? To not receive your daily earned funds generally meant that you and your family would go hungry. And so these guys, they'd kind of string them on. And the, and the poor people had no recourse against them. They couldn't afford a lawyer. The, these wealthy people generally had influence of the courts. And they, they needed a job. And if they, let's say they worked two or three days like this, they certainly wanted to get paid. But if you walked away from that, then you'd never get paid for anything that you did. And so what they do, they have nothing to do but the most important thing. They cry out to God. And notice verse 4, he says, you have withheld their pay. And their, their, this, the fact that you've done that, it cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying, what has happened here is that your wickedness is crying out. It's, it's really imagery taken from the very first injustice that ever occurred in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 4, where Cain kills Abel, his brother, do you remember that? And his blood's on the ground. And, and God says, what is in the world have you done? Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And what he's saying is your wickedness, withholding pay, not only is that withheld pay, but these very people that you're doing this injustice to, they're crying out to me and I'm going to do something about it. You see that Lord of Sabaoth, that is that Sabaoth is literally from the Greek. That's just what it reads. It, it may be in your Bible. It's translated Lord of hosts. It speaks of the God who is the commander of the armies, the commander of the heavenly armies. And what he's saying is, I will tell you something. God is going to bring about judgment. Your wickedness, your unethical treatment of your employees, it is cried out to God Almighty, the Lord of the armies, and he's going to bring judgment upon you. He is heard. And so he says, it has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, if you're in a situation where someone is treating you unjustly, unethically, maybe you are, you've earned or deserve certain pay that has actually been held back from you, you can know this. You can cry out to God, and he certainly hears, and one day he will bring about justice. Right now in our world, we have injustice everywhere. But we have people that are crying out, and God sees these things, whether it's crimes against humanity, it's wickedness in our own culture, it's something that's even happening in your business. This does not go unnoticed by God. Right now is a period in which God is mercifully and graciously withholding judgment. He is waiting for people to repent, to hear this passage, and to realize the wickedness of their ways and call out to God. But make no mistake, he's going to bring justice. And the Lord of the armies will one day execute and create and, and execute vengeance for all the misdeeds, all the unethical behavior that has taken place. And so he says, verse five, look at you. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and you led a life of wanton pleasure and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter and you have condemned and put to death the righteous man and he does not resist you. He's saying, you've lived. And think about kind of like in our American culture. It's kind of like that uh, proverbial donkey with the little carrot on the stick that's right over the head of the donkey. And, you know, the man holds the carrot with that stick and the donkey sees that. And that's, boy, 
He'd really like that. And so he keeps pursuing that carrot because he thinks that carrot will satisfy him. And so every time the donkey takes a step, you know how it works. What happens? Well, the carrot just took another step forward, too, because there's a little stick over there. But you see, the donkey never gets the carrot. And that's really kind of like us in our American culture. Think about all the many ads that are out there, whether they be the jingles that you hear on a radio or coming on the TV or the full-color ads on the, in the newspaper. All of them are meant to entice you. They're seducing you. They're saying, you need this. If you would have this, you'd be satisfied. You'd be well. You'd be content. You'd be filled. You'd have that sense of feeling that you've arrived if you only had this. And so what does the American man do or the American woman? They just keep moving forward and they keep going after this elusive carrot. You see, that carrot, it has promises But it never delivers. And what it does deliver, it never disclosed. Namely, it cannot satisfy and ultimately it'll destroy you. Well, these people here, he says, you know what, verse five, you've lived lived luxuriously on the earth. You led a life of wanton pleasure. You you went after things, whatever you wanted. You were like a fattened calf, you know, like right before they slaughter these. These cows, they're all fed and they're, they're grain fed and they're fat and they're ready. He says, that's what your life is like. You've taken it all in. You've consumed everything you thought you could get your hands on. You thought it would satisfy you. In the end, it's setting you up for complete destruction. And that's what he's referencing. Like a cow going to slaughter, so are you. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. Verse 6, he does not resist you. What is the golden rule? Anybody know what the golden rule is? I can tell you what the golden rule is not. The golden rule is not he who, with the, who has the gold rules. Have you heard that? That is not the golden rule. The golden rule, Luke 6, 31, is treat others in the same way you would want them to treat you. And yet, the golden rule kind of has been twisted with the idea that he who has all the gold makes all the rules. They, they rule. And you know what? These people live like that. This is a warning to say, you, if you are living and you've made God, your God, wealth, you will face a certain destruction. Everything you've accumulated, you can't take with you, but it will one day be a witness against you and your heart that the God of creation and the universe was really not your God, and it will stand up and testify against you. You see, there's a, there's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, that says this. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know that you have a true, authentic friend if they'll do what? They'll speak the truth to you, even if it will hurt you. It'll cause you pain, cause you to totally reevaluate and make drastic changes. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. You see, an enemy recognizes that you're in great danger, but you know what? They're just going to like, oh, you're fine. You're, you're, don't worry about that. Oh, no, don't. This whole thing about money and wealth and it corrupting you. <laughs> That's just some religious fervor. Don't worry about it all. You're fine. Just go and enjoy your life. Don't, don't worry about how much you think about your finances and your money, whether you have little or a lot. In the end, though, an enemy always tells you the wrong message. James is a friend. He is warning the rich, all of us, 
that apart from having the God of the universe as our God and Jesus as our Messiah, we face this kind of destruction. You see, you cannot serve both God and wealth. And what I'd like you to do before you leave these doors this morning, I want it clear in your mind, who is your God? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ or is it wealth? This is what this passage is meant to do, to cause you to figure it out. Is it, is it the God of the Bible or is it money? Remember what uh, Jesus said, Luke chapter 16, verse 13? He drove this point home with utter clarity. He says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't have it both ways. You can't have me, he says, and you can't have wealth, both being your God at the same time. He's not saying you shouldn't serve one, both of these. He's saying you can't. In reality, in this room, everybody's got one God. Is it Christ? Or is it wealth? Now, it's really interesting. You know, Jesus said, like, he's asking, like, who's your master? And he speaks of, like, wealth. And he's saying uh, the, the Greek word mammonos, mammon. He, he says, who are you trusting? Really, this is a really interesting word when he, in Luke 16, 13, where he says the word wealth. That Greek word mammon that originally meant to entrust. Okay, and so the idea was, let's say you had some money and there's nothing wrong with saving. In fact, we'll talk about that in a minute. But you would save your money and you would give it to someone. You would entrust that to them to protect it, guard it and protect it for you. Okay, and that's what the original word mammon meant to entrust something to someone. However, over time, it changed. It changed from that which you entrusted to that in which you put your trust. And that is that little picture of how that word kind of changed in its meaning is exactly what takes place with wealth. Instead of seeing that it's something that we were entrusted with and we could entrust to others, actually it becomes something we put our trust. Even in our own money, we have in God we trust, which happens to be our national motto. In God we trust, but it's on our money. Why do you think that is? Because we're so prone to take that money and say, in this we trust. There's something about it. We're allured to it. And in fact, wealth can become an alternative Messiah. Your pursuit of it, your dreams of it, your experiences of it, what you think you possess, and it, and it becomes like your savior. When you're in a jam, you think, well, at least I've got money that can pay me, out, get me out of this. That is until you have something like a health crisis and you realize, I'm paying the very best doctors and I still can't resolve this. God has a way of bringing this lesson home to show you that wealth is rather transitory. And so who is your master? You can't be devoted to both. Now, it's not wrong to possess wealth. What is wrong is when wealth possesses you. You can't serve both God and money. You can only be devoted to one. You see, when money is your master, you know what happens? You become its slaves. You hoard it. You want as much as you have. You can never be satisfied. The carrot keeps going out there and you keep going after it. And you get pretty good at chasing the carrot. 
But when when money is your master, you become its slaves. It dictates your experiences in life, how you feel, what you think, what's important to you. It's all about your money. It's all about your 401k. It's all about your salary. It's all about your money. However, when God is our master, we become his stewards. There's something revolutionary and radical that takes place when you and I come and truly place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He wants to take us from whatever God we had or gods, especially if that be money, and he transfers our affection to himself. And he's in the process of changing our heart and our affections and our direction where we become his stewards. And we, the, the Christian mentality toward finances and wealth is this. I have been merely entrusted with this as a manager. And I am to be a conduit of blessing. God has given me these resources to use, not only for the provisions for myself and my family, but to be a blessing to others and for even to worship the God himself. You see, when God is our master, what happens is our allegiance is transferred and we have a new life, a new hope, a new identity. You know, and actually the Bible actually even talks about saving and wise people save. And when God is your master, you save not to hoard it up for yourself, but to realize that these are provisions that God could use for me to bless others, for me to use for worship to provide for my family, but I am not putting my security on some sort of nest egg or some sort of savings account that I have. My security is in God. But friends, you start making a little bit of money and you put it away in your retirement accounts and your bank. Isn't it alluring to just keep focused on this? That's why Jesus said, it is so hard for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven because money does terrible things to you. It, It is always seeking your heart whether you have little of it or much of it. And so you know what God is doing? He's in the process, even today, of rescuing people who are ensnared to the God of wealth and drawing them to himself. Remember uh, a guy by the name of Zacchaeus? Uh, you probably heard this little song, you know, and the Zacchaeus was this wee little guy, right? Remember that one? And you remember the little flannel graph deal, and, and there was Zacchaeus. He's up in this tree, right? And the kids sing the song, and we kind of leave it there like, eh. Cute little guys in the tree. Jesus wants to have lunch with him. Nice story. Well, that didn't change anything. That changed your life. Hear about the little man in the little tree? No. But that's not the point of the story. You see, Zacchaeus was a, a chief tax collector. Now, he's a chief tax collector for, for Rome, but, you know, he's Jewish. And let me tell you about tax collectors. What tax collectors were in Israel were... They were Jewish people who had sold out to the Roman Empire. They were considered to be traitors. They had betrayed their countrymen. And so what they would do is they'd not only earn a salary from Rome, but Rome said, if you want to put any assessment, and they were arbitrary assessments, you could just say, oh, oh, this is going to cost you an extra 50 shekels for this or whatever. You could do it. That's fine. In fact, you could profit all that. That's just sheer profit. So get clever. And so what would happen? They would do that. They put assessments on all these things. They were despised by their own countrymen. They were hated. They, saw, they were seen as people who had abandoned God and God's people. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, a very wealthy man. And yet there was something in him. He had obviously realized, like so many others, that wealth simply can't satisfy. And he'd heard about Jesus. And Jesus, who was a friend of sinners. And I'm sure in his mind, he's like, I'm not only a chief tax collector, 
I'm a chief sinner. And I've heard about this Jesus who's proclaiming that he is the way of salvation. I've got to see him. And because of his stature and because, obviously, people didn't like him, it would not be popular for him to be just mixing it up with crowds and throngs of people who are coming to see Jesus. So he hightails it up a tree and he's got the view. And, whoa, he's seeing Jesus. And you remember, Jesus sees him and says, Ho, Zacchaeus, we've never met. Jesus is like, I, I know who you are, Zacchaeus. I can call you by name. Why don't you come on down from that tree? I'm, I'm having lunch at your house today. What? <gasps> and so Jesus and Zacchaeus and Jesus' followers and disciples, and I'm sure the crowds just all gather around as they make their way to Zacchaeus' place. And, and there's a private conversation that takes place, obviously, where Jesus speaks to the man's heart. And who really is your God? And we don't have the details of the conversation. But you know what we do have? We have the revelation that there's been a changed heart in Zacchaeus. In fact, Jesus even said, you know what? Salvation has come to this house today. Why in the world would Jesus say that? Because earlier, this man said, you know what? If I, if I have done anything wrong to the poor I, and I've defrauded anyone, I'll tell you what, I'm going to pay them back fourfold. And he says, you know what? And half of what I have, I'm going to give to the poor. What in the world's going on here? Is his giving of his money, is that how he like earns salvation? No. His giving of his money and paying back fourfold to anybody he defrauded, they reveal that there's been a changed heart. Generosity does not, is not a means of redemption. It gives evidence that there's been redemption that has taken place. He now sees his wealth completely differently. Once it was his God... Now it's a means of worship. Now it's a means of serving his mankind. See, and then the very next verse, in Luke 19, verse 10, you know what Jesus says? He says this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. By the way, that is the theme of the Gospel of Luke. And that is why Christ has come, to seek and to save all of us who are lost, who have made our money, our wealth, our God, he's come to seek and save people, people even like Zacchaeus, who've made money their master. So what we do with our money is really a very revealing indicator of who is the master of your heart. What are you doing with your money? I know you have lots of it. What are you doing? Take a look at your checkbook. Take a look at your charge card statement. Take a look at where you're investing it. What are you doing with your resources? Is it simply all about you and just accumulating? And I feel feel so good when I buy all this extra stuff that I really don't need. Or is there indicators that you indeed are truly not only investing in the lives of others, but there is truly an investment into the kingdom of God You love the Lord and you see yourself as a manager and you see him as your master. You see, when when God is our master, we become stewards. We become managers. We live life in submission to God. We have an awareness of our responses to God's grace. We are sensitive to the needs of others. We like to meet needs. We like to do so even quietly. And there's something about just giving finances to the glory of God as an expression of worship that delights our soul. It gives us an opportunity 
to show that there's something far more important than earthly gain. There is the worship of God who is in heaven. To be rich, like all of us are, this isn't a reason for congratulations so much as it is a call to prayer. It's not wrong to be materially blessed. What it is, though, it's a grave responsibility. But friends, make no mistake. If money really is your God, you're not truly yielded all and given it all to Jesus Christ and truly trust in him for your salvation and your life. Then you perhaps have made your master money. And your end is revealed in these verses. There's only one throne in your heart. And only one can sit upon it. Who will it be? Seriously? You're going to put wealth? Money? Really? You want that as the control of your life? Or would you not rather have the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Who came to the earth to rescue sinners? who gives joy, peace, forgiveness, healing, hope, who is bringing about the redemption of lost people that they might come to worship God, who truly transforms lives by the investment of His Spirit in their lives, would not you rather have Jesus than the riches of this world? You cannot serve God in wealth. You can only be devoted to one. Who or what will it be? Let's pray. Lord, I want to just thank you for speaking the truth, even when it is difficult to hear. For you have outlined in these verses in James just how dangerous and deceitful and destructive wealth can be. And Lord, we live in a culture that almost lulls us to sleep with the music of I want, I want, I want. Father, right now, while you have our full attention, help us to see just how deceitful wealth can be. And for those who have come here today who perhaps for the first time in their life realize that, yes, indeed, money has been and is their God, would they pray with me and say, Lord, I confess my sin. I've completely missed it. But now I see Jesus and his glory and the reason why he came. And I turn from my sin and I trust your son as the payment for my sin and the Savior of my life, and like Zacchaeus, Lord, may I experience the joy of salvation that is found in your Son. And Lord, for all of us, Lord, you know that money is a great temptation and a huge obstacle to our maturing faith in Christ. Lord, help us to have the right perspective. Give us the day-by-day perspective that we're stewards and managers of what you've given, not owners and certainly not hoarders. So, Lord, glorify yourself through our lives, especially in our use of the funds you've given us. For your glory we pray, and in Jesus' name.